you know, at, at um, my church at Bethlehem Covenant, just north of here, we don't have these cool TVs for the kids to um, enjoy themselves in. So that was, that was quite a treat. But you got some funny faces out of it, don't you? I'm sure the parents of those children also love that. They're like, oh my gosh. But um, that's part of the joy of being in church as a family. So um, and thank you for talking about the tongue, because yes, that is what we're going to talk about today, is taming our tongues. And um, the reason I picked this is because this is something that I personally struggle with. Um, I have for a long time. Um, and every beginning of the year, my husband and I typically try to pick out a word of the year that we like to focus on and have be our highlight or our vision for that year. And we pick separate words because obviously we have things that we are trying to focus on differently. Um, it could obviously be the same thing too. But um, the so- shocking thing is that typically every year I seem to pick the same word. I was actually here in January and I was talking about the same exact concept and I told you guys the word I pick is encouragement. Well, as I was thinking about this, I realized that I typically pick the word encouragement every year. And it's largely because I've realized that I'm convicted every year that I need to be more encouraging and more positive with my words and my action and my speech because sometimes I'm just plain negative and rude. Now, I don't know if that's what you struggle with, but I'm going to share this because this is what I struggle with, and maybe you can relate to a point or two as well. But words have always been a struggle for me, and so that's why I really wanted to start studying the power of the tongue or the power of words in the Bible. Now, words have uh, always been a part of my life. As you can see, I am one of four girls in my family. So my dad had no um, sons to relate to. He was always put up with a lot of conversation around the dinner table. We were a fast-flowing slew of conversation at every dinner table conversation, and he has graciously lived through all of those years, but he is now very thankful for son-in-laws. I'm the one with the necklace. Now, I don't know if family pictures happen like this at your household, but, um, you know, everyone's smiling and happy, but in reality, we were grouchy and probably kind of rude, again, rude with one another right before this. My parents made a rule, no jewelry, they said but I was mad, and I said, I'm going to wear a necklace instead. And now, 25 years later, I feel horrible because I wore a necklace, and it shows up in this family photo every year. But again, it's <laughs> just having kids, and, you know, I was, I was being a little defiant. Apparently, my mom decided to pick her battle that day and just let me wear the necklace. Um, but now, in my household, it was probably true that women spoke, or women and girls spoke twice as many words, or way more than that, than my dad. But I had heard that statistic, and I wanted to see if that was, in fact, true. And so I did a little research, and it turns out that men and women actually speak about the same number of words per day. The statistic that women speak twice as many words as men actually came from a marriage pamphlet that was trying to promote marriage conferences and and retreats. Um, But it was in 1993, and it quoted that women spoke about 20,000 words a day and men only seven. 7,000, that is, not seven words. (laughs) You might feel like it's seven in your house. I don't know. (laughs) But since then, it's been found to be wildly untrue. In 2015, a study was done, and it showed that women and men actually speak around the same amount of words a day and about 15,000 words each, with women only speaking about 700 more than men. The interesting thing, though, I found in this study was that if um, men and women are equal in a room, men were found to speak predominantly more questions than women. So if the the split is 50-50, men would account for asking two-thirds of the questions in a day. So not relating, but I just thought that was kind of interesting. Apparently women answer them, but men ask them. But all this to say is that words and communication are part of our everyday life. Since the beginning of time, long before written word, information was passed down orally. Even in the Bible or in its original forms, the Torah... Information and stories were passed down from generations to generations by speaking it to others. The patriarchs of our faith even shared about God orally. 
So stories of God's faithfulness were passed down between generations through the oral telling of scripture and not handing a child a Bible in the third grade. Although that's a great thing to do. But generations upon generations heard spoken words of who God was and who he is, and they used the power of speech to share the timeless truths about God. But while these wonderful, wonderful words were passed down upon person to person to person, other words that were, were also being used that were a lot less than ideal, as we can see today in both the positive and negative forms of speech that flood our news and our social media. So the passage I want to look at a little closer today to study the, the power of the tongue is from James chapter 3. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the we when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are very large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire, as it is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grape tree bear vi- grape tree grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So there are three things that I want to focus on from our passage today that I hope will help us understand the power of our tongue and our spoken words. And they come in three different R's. They are restraint, replacement, and repeat or repetition. So the entire passage in James, right above the, t- the start of the scripture passage, is said, taming the tongue, which is the same idea as restraining our tongues. And to restrain really just means to keep under control or keep something within its limit. So the idea of this passage is that with the Holy Spirit, we then have the ability to let our tongues stay within its limits or without the Holy Spirit to let our tongues remain uncontrolled. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28 says, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, And a man of understanding is even-tempered. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. This idea of holding our tongues doesn't just show up in James's letter, but King Solomon understood this need to withhold his speech so much so that he wanted to pass it down to his future generations as well. Solomon even tells us that a fool, so a silly person, can seem wise just by being quiet, by holding their tongue. Yeah. Something we all could learn from, right? James gives us though some additional of natural examples of how we can keep our tongues under control. He tells us of a ship and a rudder or a horse and a bit. Now both of these things would be wild or uncontrolled if they didn't have something to restrain them. Now I have never been a huge, huge fan of horses. To me they're just very large animals. I've even been to a horse camp when I was younger. I'm just, I'm not a horse person. But I did learn quite a bit when I was at horse camp, you do have to put the bit in its mouth. I was never good at that. But you do that so you have the ability to control the animal. Literally, a horse has a guard on its tongue to direct the animal and keep it under control. Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that we too should put a guard or a bit in our mouths, but some days I know I certainly wish I could. But all, three, all these authors are onto something about the idea that we need to pause and think before we speak. The old adage that we've taught our kids, the think before you speak, started much earlier than when we just began to raise our own kids. Now, when it comes to ship and rudders, I don't have a ton of experience on that as well, so I thought I would ask someone who knows a little bit more than I do. And my older sister, um, she was actually one, she had the short little haircut, she was at the top of our picture. But my older sister, Laura, she is currently a cybersecurity manager at a company that works largely on military contracts. But previously, her role in that company was as an electrical, make sure I get this right, an electrical engineer on submarines. Her job is so cool that she can't even tell us half of what she does because um, it's all secretive. So that, this is what I can share, I guess. I'll say that. I'm not sharing anything top secret. Um, but when she was in that role, she worked on the propulsion or that forward and backward motion of the submarines. And so a propeller is what she was focused on. Now, I realize a propeller and a rudder are not the same things. On some boats, they can actually be the same mechanism where the propeller and the rudder are the same, but the propeller moves it forward and backwards where the rudder steers the boat. But I think that the analogy between these things and our tongues still holds true. But one thing she shared with me was that when a new propeller is designed and ready for launch, it is completely covered on a submarine as it's being lowered into the water. And this is because they don't want any country to spy on the design, say, shape, size, materials, anything of this propeller. Because a propeller, how it's designed, it's, it controls the ship's ability to move swiftly and quietly and thereby remaining undetected to other enemy ships. Just like when our tongues are able to be controlled we can then move swiftly and quietly through our loud and sometimes unashamed world. We too then can also keep our tongues hidden and out of sight so as to remain silent for a time and choose then to listen to those around us and not always be the one talking. However, I think exercising and practicing control of our tongues doesn't have to mean just remaining, remaining silent. I think it can also be active listening. And I am so often guilty of this. I just went to um, an event yesterday with some of my friends, and I felt myself doing just the same thing, and I had just written this message on holding my tongue. But when I do this, when I listen to someone speak, I start mentally preparing for what I want to say in response. And often this comes from a very good part of my heart in wanting to relate to the person that's speaking, but it doesn't always show that I'm being wise or holding, being, showing restraint on my part. Instead, I found that if I do this so often and continue to come up with things I want to say as opposed to listen, it leaves the other person feeling dejected. When I don't choose to listen actively, the other person slowly learns to stop sharing. Wouldn't it be better energy spent if I chose to listen intently and instead of trying to come up with a witty response, worked instead to try to come up with a question to actively engage in conversation? Which do you guys feel more encouraged by? When someone, when someone shares a similar experience to what you just shared, or when someone asks an engaging question to what you shared. When our tongues act as a rudder, it then gives us control of our entire being. A well-managed tongue can guide us to say yes and no to the right activities. It can give us the encouragement then to ask those important questions of those around us. When we use our tongues like a rudder and have control of when we use it, we have so much more power than to encourage others and direct them towards Christ just simply through listening and being silent. So as we learn from James and Solomon the first the importance of restraining our tongues, we then can focus on this idea of replacement. If I've worked to remove my speech and remain silent for a few moments longer, then what do I say instead? 
it does me no good, and I'm sure you can think of an example with your own children, but if I've restrained my words that are harsh to my children, to restrain them for a moment, and then only to have those same exact harsh words come out to them a few moments later. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. And again, in Romans 12.14, which says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So once we've restrained our words, what do we replace them with? We replace them with blessings. And blessing someone is simply the idea of asking God to look favorably upon that person. Maybe you do this right out loud in the midst of the conversation you're having, having, or maybe it's done silently during that conversation. It might not even be in that exact conversation you're in, but it's done afterwards as you prepare for bed in a time of prayer and communion with God. Then you can spend a few moments speaking with God and asking God to bless the fruitfulness of those conversations. One of my favorite blessings is found in Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. And this blessing is often said at the end of church services as the benediction or the sending forth. It says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to, you. gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Now, I love playing this blessing over my children as I tuck them into the bed. And it's typically because my kids have already been prayed over once and they've come out and they've been put back to bed, and they've come out, and they've been put back to bed again. And so this is like the final prayer that they get. And um, usually they stay in bed after this. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a way to say, you know, the, the end is done. It's time to go to bed. Hopefully they enjoy that blessing as much as I enjoy saying it over them. But if you're ever looking for a blessing to pray over someone, maybe the person's just harder to pray for, or maybe you just don't know the words of how to bless someone. I suggest also looking in the New Testament epistles or the letters written in the New Testament and watch for the, Lord, the words, may the Lord. That's typically their sign of like, may the Lord, and then they continue on in these blessings for the people they're writing to. Then you can simply pray those scripture passages back to the Lord for the people on your heart. At the end of our passage in James, he talks about water flowing from a spring. And a spring doesn't just start up randomly in the middle somewhere, or it doesn't, it doesn't flow from, it has to flow from somewhere, excuse me. And so our tongues are not the things that are coming up with our words. The words start deep within us or in our hearts. This is why Proverbs tells us, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, or out of it flows life. So whatever we want to replace our words with, we must realize that it starts with the heart. Keeping the words close in our heart is a way to keep the words that you want to come out on your tongue. Uh, a year and a half ago or so, I did a sugar fast. So I fasted from um, sugars and sugary treats and things like that. And one thing the author suggested in the book I was reading through was to take a cake stand out and set it on your kitchen table or some sort of um, thing where you might display some of your goodies that you'd want. And she said, instead of your cakes or cookies, put your Bible on top. That way we can keep uh, not the cookies in mind, but our Bible and God's word in our minds. And this was definitely one thing that was a very good visual reference for me. But I think it's also important to think about the other things I'm putting in my heart. My Bible might have been sitting on my cake stain in my kitchen, but does God's word only reign in my heart in my kitchen? What about when I watch TV? Or when I scroll on my phone? Or when I'm at work? Or what I'm listening to on the radio? I realize, though, we can't always remove ourselves fully from some of these situations, like in a public setting. But if I'm surrounded by negativity for multiple hours in a day, what am I doing in those other hours to replace what's already filled my heart? What can I do to make sure my heart is able to get full of things like peace and purity, mercy, and righteousness? 
The Bible tells us that we should be thinking and dwelling on these things. When we always think of things like peace and mercy, it leaves little room for things like worry and doubt and anxiety and fear. When we keep God's word close in our heart, it is life-giving, not just for ourselves, but because it enables us to be life-givers to others. With our new reduced and replaced speech, we can share then with others that are bogged down by worry and fear because we have full and abundant hearts and can share those things with them. I realize most of my examples today are of my children, but that's because I'm with them a lot. Um, But I often think of these things as I send my kids off to school each morning. I want them to have that ability to have those natural things flow out of them because of their time spent with our church family and Sunday school classes and our kids programming because of my prayers over them so that they may go to school and they are able to empathize with the lonely, help the one that's struggling, and encourage someone. When my heart is full of compassion and grace and mercy, I can share those things so much more easily with my kids. But when I'm stressed, anxious, or frustrated, even hungry in the morning, I hardly send them off with the goodness I desire so that they can impact those around them. Now granted, sometimes I send them off with compassion and grace and mercy, and they still don't help those around them, but it's this idea of continually helping them and working towards those things. Our actions and our words have power to influence those around us. So I must first work on filling my heart and my speech with the right things because there is power in our words there. The last R I want to touch on is this R of repeat or repetition. Now, all three of these hit close to home. Again, words have always been a part of my life and a struggle for me personally. But the R of repeat, I think, is the one that does the most good and assists the other two of replace and restrain. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I'm a firm believer in the value of scripture memory. I'm not always good at it, but I know there's something to having it memorized versus having to grab my phone and type in things like verses that help with stress or verses that give me peace. Of course, I realize we're always going to use those methods. I just did this morning when I was searching something on my phone for things I was looking in the Bible. But I want to be that woman in her 90s that has great-grandchildren and grandchildren, and they know every time they approach me, they know that I'm going to give them a word of scripture and not because I just looked on my phone. The first time I was really convicted about my need to memorize scripture was during an evening in my college ministry years. Honestly, I don't remember what the speaker was actually talking about, um, except that he asked if anyone had a verse or scripture that they had memorized that they could share with the group. And a few people could recite John 3.16 or Philippians 4.13, but not necessarily perfectly. And then he asks if anyone could finish this sentence. Now, I realize you might not all get this reference, but he starts with, in West Philadelphia. Yeah. (laughs) And I know most of you can probably do it. Um, But you can imagine what happened is the entire room broke out in song as we belted out the lyrics to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's theme song, myself included. And I was shocked. He was right. I had spent enough time watching that show 10 years earlier that it had cemented in my heart. Now, I realized that songs do have great power to encourage memorization, and I could do that with scripture memory as well, but it was shocking that what I spent my time with was eventually going to fill my heart and my mind. Now, I also want to share a few more positive um, examples of memorization. There is a man that I found named Tom Meyer. He is 46 and has the nickname of the Bible Memory Man. He has memorized 20 books, not chapters, 20 books of the Bible completely. Susan Heck has memorized the entire New Testament. That's 27 books. 
And she rotates through them while now she's starting to work on memorizing things, books from the Old Testament. Dr. Andy Davis has memorized a shocking 34 books of the Bible. And you may be thinking you could never be like one of these individuals, and I partly agree, myself included. And that's because I think God has gifted some people with this amazing ability to memorize lots of scripture, but I think we can all at least memorize some scripture. But each of these three individuals had their own unique plan to memorize scripture, but they all had three, three commonalities in how they memorized scripture. And they said they always memorized by speaking the word, hearing the word, and then writing the word. They all also talked about the importance of reviewing what they had memorized. Each of them said, you know, once I finish memorizing a book, maybe I'm on book 20, books one and two had, were a lot harder to re recall and bring to memory. Heck, I can barely do that with 20 verses, so I can see why. But maybe start with something that clicked today. Read it. Recently, my verse was Psalm 141.3, which you heard me say earlier. I've set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Say it out loud when you drive. Write it down in your journal. Read it from a note, ca note card of when you're brushing your teeth or listen to it on an audio Bible. But once God's word starts to take hold in your heart, you've already started to replace the unproductive words you know with some of the best words. And so now because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, through the scripture we've memorized, the Spirit gives us the ability and the power to speak at the right times and then be silent when we need to listen. And there are books and apps and games and so much more to help us memorize scripture. In my college ministry, they had this one called the Topical Memory System. It had this little nice pouch with these cards in it, and they had um, like a reference to go with it, like um, Life with Christ or Separate from Sin. And I still use those today, and I keep them in my car to help review and remember the scripture that I have had memorized. Even recently, because I was preparing for this, I found the kids' topical memory system, and I purchased that so I could start working on passing scripture memory down with my children and my own next generation. Now, if we go back to our scripture passage, in verse 8, James tells us that no one can tame the tongue. And I always find it a little funny and frustrating when authors do this, because the passage is titled Taming the Tongue. As if, as readers, we can expect that we can learn or get some advice or some encouragement and how to control our tongues and our speech. But then in just a few breaths later, he says, no one can tame the tongue. So which is it? Can I or can't I? Perhaps it's just me that finds passages like this a little frustrating, but the more I was able to spend time in this passage and reading it, the more I was able to see the theme that James left behind is wonderful. It says, can salt water flow from a fresh spring? Can an olive tree produce figs? Or maybe if I say it in a different way, can I, as a follower of Christ, say hurtful and rude things to my family? Can I truly love the Lord if I've lashed out in anger to someone? And honestly, yes, these things will still happen. That's because we exist still on this side of heaven. I'm never fully able to remove sin from my life. But it doesn't mean we lose our salvation when these things happen. I am not a fig tree that produces olives. I am a fig tree that occasionally produces rotten fruit. But what these beautiful images should point us to is our consistent character. My tongue will make great boasts of the Lord, but sometimes it'll trip and falter and spit out words that I don't even recognize. But what is greater? My praise of the Lord and the encouragement of others? The kind words to my kids? Yes, I hope so. And I want those to be in abundance. And then I want to ask mightily for God's grace when the other comes out. But either way, those around us will start to see the fruit of what we speak, either good or bad. And what is more consistent? Which reflects my character? 
eventually we will be known by the fruit of our tongues. Am I producing fresh water and figs? Am I restraining my tongue to become a better listener? Am I replacing the harsh words I thought with kind and honest ones instead, with words to bless and to encourage? And am I working to fill, am I working to fill God's word in my heart and my life so that it can overflow into my speech? I encourage you as well this week to spend some time meditating on James's words so that you can also tame your tongue. Let's close in prayer today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I so thank you for James's words that you can encourage us that with your spirit, we have the ability to be kind and honest and helpful, that we can focus on things like mercy and peace and righteousness. Lord, continue to guide us with your spirit this week so that we can tame our tongues as well. Amen.